Good morning. Everybody okay? Squeezed in? Feel good? Good to see everybody this morning. Thankful to be here. It's another beautiful morning. This is two beautiful mornings in a row for Sunday, but God knows best, and I'm thankful that each and every one of you have uh, chosen to be here with us. If you don't mind, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 13, is packed with so much stuff. So I have to be careful because this is the service I can't preach long. That's why y'all are in here. I know that. I understand that. Don't, 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 don't let me, or don't think that I don't know or don't understand that. I got to keep going here. So uh, we're going to look at this passage together. I do want to say two things just by way of reminder and uh, to let you guys know, at the end of our service, let me, let me remind you that every time we sing at the end of a sermon, it is a song of response. That response is in the very words we sing, how we respond back from what we have heard in the message. And as you know, each message that we bring here as we proclaim the word is rife with invitation. There is an invitation to come to Christ, to join his body, to be with his people, and to flee to him in every one of them. At the end of this service, we do it a little bit differently. We'll have some of our ministers in the back. I believe Josh Duncan, uh, Alex Smith in the back that will be ready to receive anybody that wants to respond in that moment at that time. All right? We'll be ready to receive anybody that wants to respond in that moment at that time. And you can just step with them. We'll have counselors and other things just to let you know how we do it a little bit differently during this hour. Also, let me remind you or maybe inform you that if you're a guest with us or if you've been with us for some time but have not joined our body or been a part of it, also immediately after this service or in the next hour, our starting point class will begin. Now, we do this about once every quarter or so throughout the year, but this is just three weeks where you, three, four, how many weeks is it? I just shortened it for you, Jeremy. It's three weeks. It's good. Jeremy just made a decision right there to go with what I said. <laughs> so you go three weeks where you learn about our church. We learn about you, and it's a good time for you to, or a good way for you to, to come into our body learning about us. So that happens immediately after this service today. One of those begins. Acts chapter 2, uh, that passage in verses 1 through 13 here that we have been waiting on just as the apostles had been waiting. Remember, it begins with the Lord ascending into heaven and then that time of waiting as the Lord tells them to wait on the Holy Spirit to come. That waiting period is about 10 days and those 10 days are up in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. So let's read this passage together as the apostles are there waiting. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we ask as we gather around it, even as we've already sung, Father, we ask that you would teach us again, mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that there is no rival to you, God, that you alone are God, and that we as your people have gathered together to offer up this sacrifice of worship to you today. And so, God, Make us into the people you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We cannot help, I think, but come to church today and think of history. I mean, it, 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 it is for us, especially over the last few, last 21 years, have to be reminded of what 9-11 means. I remember where I was 21 years ago today at this exact time, by the way. Southern Seminary, 8 a.m. class. I did not normally desire 8 a.m. classes, but this time I had one with Robert Stein studying the book of Mark. I left class just before 9 a.m. A crowd had gathered in the TV room at Southern Seminary, and I was wondering what was going on because nobody was ever in there that early and I saw what was happening on the TV. The first plane hit the first building. I left the TV room, went to my campus apartment, and all day I watched the rest of it. I remember it vividly. This day surely stirs up emotions of that day, uh, 21 years ago. And of course, it makes me thankful for so many. You're reminded of the first responders and others who were part of it. But this is a historical day. Moments and the memories after that are also in my head. President Bush standing on the rubble. They'll all hear you soon. Y'all remember. And, of course, throwing out the first pitch is one of the greatest moments in baseball history in the World Series. Also, this week reminds us uh, with Queen Elizabeth dying. I remember um, vividly the day as the changing of the guard happened in, in England that day, there at Buckingham Palace, and instead of playing the national anthem of England, they played the Star-Spangled Banner. This week, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, after 70 years, Queen of England, with the coming of 9-11, this is a historical week that we've been through. And what makes it historical are the consequences that come because of it. Think of how 9-11 changed our history. Or think about how the queen, 70 years ruling, changed history. So this is a historical week as we gather together. And what I would say for us this morning then as we look at Acts chapter 2 is that this passage carries with it a great amount of consequence as well. In fact, this may be one of these historical moments, one of the most historical moments in all of human history that we're looking at here in chapter 2. So we can think about the history of this week and all that has happened and everything it represents, but Acts chapter 2 is far more consequential and far more important in the nature of human history as it comes to us. And so as we look at this together, we find the birth of Christ's church here. 
the birth of Christ's church coming by the coming or brought about by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And how absolutely necessary is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why this is so consequential. It's not possible for us to promote the glory of God. It's not possible for us to sing and bring, sing praises to the glory of God or bless those around us unless the Holy Spirit is in us and with us. In the room here in Acts chapter 2 were men of faith, men of prayer, both precious gifts, but truly only available when the Holy Spirit sets them afire. They had great experiences here in chapter 2. All these apostles, disciples had been together. They had seen Jesus. They had heard his teaching. They seen his signs. They seen his miracles. All of his preaching. They had been with that. Yet even the experiences they have, and even them as experienced Christians, are weak as water without the Holy Spirit. All that they had done, all that they had heard, the Lord said, you guys are ready to roll, but here's something that's important for you to know. The Lord made it clear, you dare not attempt anything by yourself. You wait until the Holy Spirit comes. You dare not go out into the world. I'm sending you there, but you wait here. Because if you were to attempt this on your own, it would surely mean failure. It is the necessity of the Spirit that will bring this about. I love the Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, it was not a want of education. They had been for three years in the college of Christ with perfect wisdom as their tutor, matchless eloquence as their instructor, and immaculate perfection as their example. Yet they must not venture to open their mouths to testify of the mystery of Jesus until the Spirit comes upon them. In that very truth, then, all of their efforts, good efforts, all of, their, all of their programs, even good programs, all of their teaching, their sound teaching, all of their outreach that they would do, all of it must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit or it is ineffective and useless. And so this moment in history is huge then. For everything they had learned and everything they had done, the Lord says, you must not go one step alone Wait until the Spirit comes. And that's why Acts 2 is so important. That's why Acts 2 is so important here. It reports to us how the Holy Spirit came, has come to the church to indwell and empower. To indwell and empower it, empower it so that it can accomplish all that it is called to do. That's why this day, as I said, Acts chapter 2, this day of Pentecost goes up there right alongside all other days in the history of salvation. When we think of creation, all the way down to the virgin birth, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, Pentecost is in that list. It is a day that was necessary just as much as the virgin birth. It was a day that was necessary just as much as the death of Christ on the cross. And it was just as important as the resurrection. All of it goes together with the history of salvation for God's people. How was God going to save and redeem a people? It's going to be through sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die in their place, be raised again, ascended to the right hand of the throne, and sending the Holy Spirit to come and let that message spread from one place to the other all the way to the ends of the earth. That's how he would save his people. So this day fundamentally changes everything. 
None of these days when we talk about our history, the virgin birth, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, none of these days need to be relived or recreated. They are enough in and of themselves. However, each one of these days fundamentally changed everything. And we live now not to recreate them, but in light of them. Because they happened, we live in light of them. It's interesting as we read in this passage that this happened on the day of Pentecost in the first place. The word Pentecost simply means 50th or 50 days after the Passover. 50 days after the Passover. And as we know, that's 50 days since Jesus had died on the cross. He died on that day of Passover. And so 50 days since he had died, now we have Pentecost. The calendar, the Jewish calendar, was built around festivals. Pentecost was the festival of weeks. It represented the planting and the first fruits of harvest, if you will. Celebrating those first fruits fruits of the uh, grain harvest that would come in. So as they planted the first harvest they had, they would celebrate at the festival of weeks. And what would happen was to celebrate this, all of Jerusalem, all of Israel would come together there again for this celebration. This feast was a feast of hope. It symbolized that there was more to come. We celebrate the goodness of God and the first fruits he's given us, and we look forward to the full harvest that he is bringing about. And so it tells us a little something of this festival of weeks, this little idea of Pentecost, whenever he tells us in Acts chapter 2 that at the end of, of, of Peter preaching and the coming of the Spirit, some 3,000 souls were saved that day. What that means is that's just the first fruits of what's going to happen here with the coming of the Spirit. This is just the first little piece of it. There is hope that God will spread his word and that all of his people will come together. And so here on this day of Pentecost, the celebration of the first fruits with anticipation that there is much more to come, they had all gathered in this place. And let's look. He says that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Just looking at a few of these phrases, I love how Luke uh, elaborates or explains what's happening on this very important day. He says first, they were all together in one place. We talked about this last week, how the apostles had joined together in one accord. Y'all remember my joke, right? Everybody remembers it. Good. I bet y'all have used it several times this week. It's okay. Keep going. I got others. And so we all together and in one unity, in one accord, they're in one place waiting, just as the Lord has said. And remember, as they were there waiting, they were praying. They were praying with expectation of what God would do. They were praying, looking forward to what God is going to bring about. And in their expectation, they believed, they believed the promise of God. And so they're in one place as a testimony that they believed what God was going to do and they were expecting him to do it. They were expecting him to do it. Surely they had learned a lesson from Thomas. Y'all remember what happened with Thomas, right? The day that Jesus rose again, he appeared to his disciples, and guess what happened? Thomas had a baseball game. Y'all remember that? It's just a joke. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Thomas was somewhere else. 
He was not present with them. He was not with them in that place. And so they all week long had to tell Thomas what happened. Thomas, you're not going to believe this. Jesus rose again and appeared in the room with us and told us all of this stuff. You're not going to believe what happened, Thomas. And all week, Thomas like, I don't, uh, you're right. I don't believe it. I don't trust it. And so it was the next week that Thomas was confronted with the resurrected Christ and he had to touch his hand and touch his side because he had missed church one Sunday. Ultimately, the people were all here together and they did not want to miss what was coming. They were living expectantly. They were gathered together, believing God was going to do exactly what he says he was going to do. They came to church with expectation and prayed up. And if you want me as the pastor here to tell you how I would love for you to enter into this place, it would be in the same way, prayed up with expectation that God is going to do something. Oftentimes we simply come, we simply appear because this is what we check off our list or what we do. But I'm telling you, God is mighty to save. God is powerful to change lives. God is going to demonstrate that power, I truly believe, as we see here, through his church. And so ultimately, they were there in one place, prayed up and expectant of what God was going to do. This was their top priority. Everything else. Now, before I go too far, I don't want you to dare think that I, I, I believe there is no reason for you to miss church, right? I just want you to know. I just want you to know that when God shows up in the church, you don't want to hear about it secondhand. That's exactly what we see here. When something amazing happens in the body of Christ, you don't want to be told about it from somebody else. You want to be present for it. You're expectant of it. And that's what God does. And all I ask as a pastor is that the presence of you in the church on Sunday morning as we gather together would be your top priority that day. That doesn't mean that some other things may come up, but oftentimes when we look to church, it's what we do when we don't have anything else to do. And it should be the other way around. It's what we do first and foremost. And the only thing that can pull us away is some other responsibility that may come up at that time that is important for that moment. But nothing else takes top priority over gathering together with the saints, expectantly waiting on God to work and believing, believing he will. He will. He says then, they're all in that place, gathered together, and suddenly... There came from heaven. And suddenly there came from, I just love every little phrase. I mean, this is just so incredibly written. They're all in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven. Jesus had told his disciples what he would send, that he would send the helper to them. He told them, Y'all need to wait because I'm going to spend, send the Holy Spirit. And he said that. He said, I'm going to have to return to heaven. I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to return. And when I return, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And so here, that's exactly what this phrase is summarizing. We saw in chapter 1, Jesus ascending up to the right hand of the Father. And now coming from heaven, coming from heaven is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is sending his Spirit. As Peter will state later in chapter 2. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has ascended to the right hand and now we are receiving from that hand the Father 
himself is sending the Spirit. And so what you see as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2 that we'll see next week, what you're seeing and what you're hearing has coming directly from the Father. It's coming from heaven. Just as heaven came down in the incarnation and gave us that baby boy Jesus who grew up to be uh, the one who would save and redeem us, the very Son of God. Just as heaven came down in the incarnation, heaven has come down again and met us here with the outpouring of the Spirit. Therefore, the coming of the Spirit on this day was a sudden, a unique, a supernatural event. What's happening here in Acts chapter 2 comes directly from heaven. It was sudden, it was unique, it was supernatural. And in this unique occasion, what's going to accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit are audible signs accompanied by physical phenomenon that takes place that demonstrates exactly what God is doing. Look at what it says. It says that all together in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. This Phenomenon that takes place with the coming of the Spirit is first described as a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word for spirit, by the way, is the same word in the Hebrew and the Greek that's used for wind or breath. Spirit, wind, breath, all the same word in the Hebrew and the Greek. And so what this teaches us, in the Hebrew, by the way, it's ruach. In the Greek, it's pneuma. Both of these words are interchangeable for spirit, breath, wind. And so what Luke is describing here is the coming of this sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's not blowing through like a wind. It's the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And we all know what loud wind sounds like when it whips through. We've heard that sound before, surely. So here comes this loud sound that is coming in like mighty rushing wind. Luke is describing the events not only as they happen, but with biblical imagery here. He's describing exactly what happens, but Luke is intentionally wanting us to see that this is connecting us back to, to some other passages in the Old Testament showing us what this means for us. Genesis chapter 1-2, it is the Spirit of God that is hovering over the face of the waters. It's the Ruach of God, the breath of God that comes down that brings about creation. So in Genesis 1, its creation is, is there commanded by God and the Son is a part and the Spirit is bringing it in. And so even in creation, we get that wind of God that is bringing about creation in Genesis 1-2. God is doing something new again here. Just as he created in Genesis 1 with his wind, with his spirit, with, with his breath, so now when the church comes in, he is creating something new in this moment. But this is not just something new. He's bringing about something new, but it's also this recreation idea. So in the same way, in the same way you see it in Genesis 1-2, you also see it in that famous passage in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is the passage of the, the valley of dry bones, right? And so all the bones are out there, and they're dead, and that's the passage. They're, they're all just a valley of, of dry bones. But what we find in Ezekiel 37 is as that valley of dry bones is there, wind or breath or spirit of God is used interchangeably in chapter, in chapter 37, verse 9 in Ezekiel to bring those dry bones to life. The wind, the breath, the spirit of God comes into the valley and those old dry bones are brought to life again. The old way 
is passing away. The new way has come. The old is giving way to the new. And so here on this day, when, whenever Luke is describing what happens at Pentecost, what he's saying is that the Spirit of God comes into the place. He's making something new. He's recreating what was dead. He's bringing to life again something glorious in the presence of the people. The sound like a mighty rushing wind brings that imagery. But not only that, it says... Divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. Like the wind, this was a symbol of the, the presence of God. This divided tongues of fire. Y'all see that, right? Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. If you remember, this also draws us back to an Old Testament passage. The passage, I believe, that this brings us back to is there in the wilderness, God had called his people out of the wilderness, out of the bondage of slavery, sin of Egypt. And, and, and remember, as Moses comes in, and if you want to know about this story, come back on Wednesday night. We're right in the heart of it on our Wednesday night pastor's Bible study. Moses comes in, tells the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Y'all know how that song goes. And so he comes in and tells them, let them go, right? And then, and then Moses wants them to know, how do we know God is with you? And God says, I will demonstrate my presence. And how does he demonstrate it? All they have to do is look in a pillar of fire by night in a pillar of cloud by day always stands before the people. In fact, it's this pillar of cloud that leads them out ultimately out of Egypt. It's the pillar of cloud that goes behind them and blocks Pharaoh's army to get to them. It's this pillar of cloud that leads them through the wilderness. And then when they build the tabernacle, it's that pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day that stands over the tabernacle. So the people of God never have to question whether or not God is with them. All they ever have to do is look outside their tent and see that pillar of fire and know God is present with us. That's what's happening here in Acts 2. These pillar of fires, if you will, that, that, that Luke in his way uses the word tongues of fire are now appearing over each and every one of them as the Spirit of God is indwelling them to proclaim the word. And so what the people see as they look at them is the fire of God is present here. God's presence is here. And here it says this pillar is divided up. It's not in one place as of over the tabernacle. It's over all of them. Each one of them has the presence of God within them. Divided, not singular. Everyone, everyone here has the presence of God with them as they stand in this room. Now note, all of these others haven't come yet. We'll see that in a minute. Here are the ones who have been waiting and praying and looking, and they're gathered here. When the others hear the sound of the, the rushing wind, and then they hear these talking in languages, they come and they start flocking to see what's going on. But at this point, the Spirit is showing up. He's showing up in a sound like the wind, creating and recreating something new. He's showing up like the presence of God in the Old Testament with his people. God is present here. And it's not in a building. It's not in a place. It's with his people. He's present. And then they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Many people try to decipher whether this was 
uh, one of two things, a miracle of hearing or a miracle of speaking. You see in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It clearly to me sounds there as if this is a miracle of speaking. They're speaking languages they have not learned, right? They're speaking languages they have not learned. It's a miracle of utterance as the Spirit gives it to them. But if you look down, as others come to listen, they're bewildered because each one in verse 6 was hearing them speak in his own language, amazed and astonished, saying, Are they always speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his native language? Was it a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing? And my simple answer is yes. I believe it was. I think it's a miracle of communication that's taking place. And how does communication work? Through speaking and hearing. It is both of these things. What's happening here clearly is not to be dissected as in whether it's a miracle of hearing or speaking. What's happening here is God is breaking down any barrier for the gospel at this moment, at this place, so that it can go forth to the ends of the earth. And he's breaking it down through this miracle of communication. Now, what's clear is they're not speaking gibberish. They're speaking language, maybe language they haven't heard. It's not just nonsense they're doing here, but they're speaking in ways that are miraculous. They haven't learned this language, yet they speak this language. I have prayed for this gift a thousand times in places. You know what I mean? Hadn't worked out for me. But what God is doing at this moment in this place, he is showing up that he is doing something new. He's recreating what was lost. He is showing up with his presence in this place with his people. And he is going to break down for this day and this moment the barriers that arise from these people hearing about the mighty works of God. He's breaking it down. Speaking and hearing is taking place. And they are all together in this one place filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. There is an interchangeability, if you will, of this phrase with other phrases that we find in the first chapter of Acts. He, the Holy Spirit has baptized believers as Acts chapter 1. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon believers in Acts 1.8. It comes upon them. Believers receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. And here in our passage, it says that the Holy Spirit fills believers, fills them. There is no distinction in my mind, in my understanding, there's no distinction between these phrases at all. What it means to be filled, what it means to be baptized, what it means for the Spirit to come upon, what it means to receive the Holy Spirit. There's no distinction between any of these phrases and I think when we start making distinctions between these phrases, when we are led to many errors in understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, all who have received the Holy Spirit, all who have received the Holy Spirit have received the Holy Spirit at the moment they profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The moment that we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The moment that we are moved from death to life, the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures teach that it is at that moment the Spirit comes to dwell within us. We are baptized in it. We receive the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. The moment we profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the moment that we are baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then this means that the Spirit makes us a new creation. The Spirit becomes the presence of God within us, just as this testifies in chapter 2. All who believe in Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, hence the nature of his church. Hence, that's why we believe what we believe about church membership. 
For those who want to be a part of his church, they must profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Admit they're a sinner, admit their need of Christ and their dependence upon him. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when that happens, the Spirit of God makes you new, comes to dwell within you. So everybody, we believe, that is a member and a part of our church who has professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has the Spirit of God living within them. So act like it is what I'm saying. Glad y'all laughed. Here, the purpose of God is now with his church. The change here becomes clear. And in Acts, you have this, this interesting thing you have to deal with. You have to deal with whether or not these things are prescriptive or descriptive. We talk about this just quickly. Is God prescribing something for us to do or describing what went on? And in this passage, in many places, he's describing what happens, but those descriptions of what happened becomes prescriptions for us in this way. First of all, we need to know as the Lord builds his church that the presence of God is now with his church. The presence of God is now with his church. We see this in this fire that comes down. The presence of God is dwelling with his people. And so as God's church exists in this world, we need to know that the presence and power of God are with us. The moment we lose that is the moment we lose our viability. The moment we don't see that or understand it is the moment we become defeated to the ways of this world. But even as we sung earlier, our God has no rival and his church can survive in this world only by the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything else we do becomes futile and weak and useless, but it's only in the proclamation of Christ and the power of his Spirit can we accomplish what God has sent us to accomplish, and God's presence is with us. Also, the fulfilling of the Great Commission is now possible through the power of Spirit in every believer. He says, I'm going to be with you, and so you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, but wait on the Holy Spirit. The intention here is that when you wait on the Holy Spirit, you can't do this without it, but when it comes, go. And so the idea for us to recognize is we have everything we need in the Spirit to proclaim the gospel to anybody and everybody we come in contact with. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to deny that is to deny the power of the Spirit. In other words, when we say, well, I'm not equipped, I'm not good enough, I can't really do this on my own, I can't really accomplish this, really what you're saying here is that the Spirit is not good enough, strong enough, or powerful enough. Because the Spirit is present with His church. And every believer within his church who had been born again by the power of the Spirit has the Spirit within them to help them accomplish the great commission that is before them. Third and finally, through the church, God will make everything that was wrong right again. Through the church, God will make everything that was wrong right again. Now understand, we can't get it displaced. The church is not most important here. It's God, right? And God, through his Spirit, has chosen to use the church to make everything that was wrong right again. 
It says in verse 5, they were all there dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then it gives this list of nations. And, and, and we see this list of nations is not as exhaustive, but covering the full gamut of what they knew as the known world. The Parthians are as far east as you could go. Rome was as far west as you could go. Asia was as far north as you could go. Egypt and Libya as far south as you can go. The Cretans were in the islands in the Mediterranean. The Arabs were in the desert. It's covering all all things, Jews, Gentiles, it's covering the full gamut of everything they know. What he's saying is, is they are all here. They're all present. And they hear this sound and they come rushing to it. Let's see what it is. And they hear these people begin to speak and they're speaking in their own language and the barrier's broken down and they're sitting there going, what is going on? But I believe what we see is going on is that the Lord is making something new that was lost. It reminds us here of Genesis 10 and 11. It reminds us, drawing us back to the Tower of Babel, if you will. And remember, our passage, or what I think here, is our passage is a reversal or redemption of Babel. For in this, in Babel, they were in one place with one language, making a name great for themselves, it says particularly. But here, they have gathered together, and they're in one place. All of them were there. Y'all heard that part. They were speaking languages so that all could hear. And that barrier, that Babel broke up when God confused them and spread them out. Now they've all come back. All the nations under the heavens have come back. And now they're speaking one language again. Or the barrier of language has been broken down. So now they're proclaiming. And what are they doing here in Acts 2? They're not making a name great for themselves. It says they are declaring the mighty acts of God. They're declaring it. And so for this brief moment in history in Acts chapter 2, we see the reversal of the curse of Babel, how God confused language and spread people out that has been reversed so that the gospel here can be planted as a seed, the church could begin, and every one of these who believe, some 3,000 of them will take that gospel to their place. It's why Paul found God-fearers in Phrygia and Philanthia. Maybe I said that wrong, but whatever. Y'all don't know. I shouldn't have said anything. Maybe it's how he found them there, how they came from, and they heard about the mighty acts of God, and they spread out. God will build his church through the power of the Holy Spirit, its presence and power. And when you get to Revelation 7, what do we have in the end? We have all the people in one place, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, in one place, again in Revelation 7 gathered around the throne with Jesus on that throne and they're not making a name great for themselves but in one voice or one language, Revelation 7 says, they're making a name great for God. As they sing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. You see here in this moment of history, Acts chapter 2, the Lord is testifying to how he's going to use his church to change the world for his name's sake through his presence with them, through his power with them. He's going to use them to change the world. Pentecost is not to be repeated, but it is never to be retracted either. It's always what we live in light of. We live in light of the coming of the Spirit. I love in some ways how it testifies here of how they're proclaiming the mighty works of God with these signs and wonders. But as we close this passage, what we recognize is that signs and wonders are not enough. 
In some ways, it's, it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, they had seen the miracle of hearing and speaking. They had the signs and wonders. They're hearing about the mighty acts of God. And it says some of them believed, but others mocked. Others mocked. What we know is that the only way salvation can come is if the Lord does it. The only way things that are wrong can be made right is if the Lord makes them right. And what we see in our passage is that the Lord has done everything needed to make what was wrong right again. And he will accomplish that. Revelation 7 is coming. We know. And if we begin with the end in mind, knowing that all of us will gather around the throne in one voice, sing praise to Jesus himself. If we begin with that in mind, that means we live every day in light of that. And the church is where we do that. We live in light of what God is doing through the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. And God, we pray that you would keep us near you, Father. That we would recognize and see and know that in you and in you alone do we find the power needed through your spirit to accomplish your task. And God, you have not hesitated, but you have given your spirit to all who believe. And so, Father, we as your people, your believers in this room, those who've been saved by you, give us the strength, give us the wisdom, and demonstrate through us the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can accomplish what you've called us to accomplish. We know that's how you'll build your church. God, to anybody here that is looking for a church home, may they find it here together. For all of us here who are devoted to following you, faithful members here at Taylor's First, God, may we all remember the power that we have through the spirit that you have given us to accomplish your work. All of this we pray as we stand together in Jesus' name. Amen.